yay, oh yay, oh yay. There was a time in the South where it was illegal for African-Americans to coexist in the same space with people who were not African-American. Folks came together and said, now is the time to make a frontal assault on segregation. Segregation breeds a sense of inferiority on the, on the part of black children. And for that reason, there is a damage that comes from that. And because of that damage, separate but equal is inherently unequal. Let's kind of just start first. Sure. Just a little background on you, where you grew up, how you first became interested in history in general, um, civil rights history in particular, what led you to law school, just that whole background. So I'm Charles Johnson, uh, I was born in Nashville, grew up in Dayton, Ohio, went to school in upstate New York at Bard College and uh, law school at Boston College. Uh, and I grew up among folks who were playing a role in the things that were changing in this country in the 50s. Um, so that um, my grandfather was a, a leading sociologist and kind of a convener of people who were making things happen in, in, in the movement. Um, so that at Fisk University, where he was president, uh, he, had, he founded a race relations institute, which was kind of a forum for folks to come together to talk about what was on the horizon, what the strategies were and that sort of thing for making things happen. So, so a, lo a lot of this history that, that you've been talking about took place or was hatched on the Fisk campus. So when the folks gathered in 1951 and 1950 to talk about changing the direction of, uh, of civil rights litigation, a lot of that discussion took place at the Race Relations Institute at Fisk. So I grew up around a lot of the folks who were kind of making these things happen. The psychologist who did the doll studies in the Brown case was one of my sponsors and mentors, uh, Kenneth Clark. And so I just was kind of in that milieu to the point where I thought everybody was involved uh, in the movement some sort of way. And I, I think there's a lot to that. So uh, you don't you hear a lot about the the leaders who are about making things happen. But the civil rights movement was was a mass movement. It was a, it was a movement in which lots of people who go unsung had some part to play, you know, whether they're whether large or small, whether it's making sandwiches for people who were sitting in, opening up their homes for people who were uh, uh, if, if Thurgood Marshall was coming to town, finally giving him a place to stay when hotels weren't available and that sort of thing. There were a lot of people who were part of making that happen. And that's kind of the milieu in, in, in which in which I grew up. I, got, I, I thought everybody was was involved in, in, in some sort of way. And I, I don't think I'm totally 
completely wrong. Mm. But I, at some point, decided I wanted to try to figure out what made the civil rights movement was was a mass movement. It was a, it was a movement in which lots of people who go unsung had some part to play. You know, the opportunity to go to law school came open, and it, it occurred to me that might be another window on what drives the direction of society. And so it wasn't out of any kind of law as a business motivation more uh, as much as it was uh, just a curiosity about what made society tick that led me to a legal education. I had some good counseling and some good guidance. So I had a you know, one of the deans, one of the deans at my college suggested I go to Boston College. One of the deans at Boston College Law School suggested I explore law review, and I ended up doing that, which opened up some doors. Another one of the deans at my law school, the same dean actually, he suggested I explore, you know, institutional law firm practice, and so I, I explored that. But I never lost my interest in trying to have an understanding of what makes society tick. And I, I continue to maintain, even today, that it, it really isn't possible to, to, to uh, competently confront whatever reality is before you unless you understand the context, unless you understand what brought us to where we are. So that has, that has led me to continue to be thirsty for knowledge about what brought us to where we are today. So you had that background, as you said, that's the milieu you grew up in. Then they had the formal training in it. What kind of relationship did you see between the two? Did, did one sort of make the other one more fulfilled or did you, what kind of, what kind of balance was there before the, between the two? Well, I was fortunate, you know, I came along at a time when law was still considered a profession as opposed to a business. You know, and there was the expectation among the folks with whom I practiced that 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 lawyers had a role to play in the direction that their community went. And so folks in major law firms uh, in Atlanta, when I started practicing, had some involvement. All A lot of them had some involvement in in some aspect of of community life. I was recruited to get involved with something with the Atlanta Community Relations Commission, uh, which had a subsidiary that was an open housing coalition back in, during the time when open housing was was controversial, was controversial, um, and um, I ended up sharing the the, the the commission at a time when when we were doing a a program of fair housing testing which is where you send out matched pairs. You send out a black couple and a white couple to a real estate office to see if there's any difference in treatment and turning over the results of their test to the Justice Department uh, for whatever action they thought appropriate. And uh, as a result of that testing information, the Justice Department brought in a, a several pieces of litigation, including a piece of litigation uh, seeking uh, a contempt action against the largest real estate company in Georgia for violating an existing injunction. When that company found out that the evidence in that case was included testing evidence, they sued all the testers. Who were these volunteers? 
is these white and black regular people who who volunteered to see what the real estate industry in, in, in Atlanta was doing. And so these folks were, were named in, in this big lawsuit by this big company and needed legal help. And here I was an associate in a law firm. I was chair of the co of the coalition. So uh, I went to see my senior partner, Philip Henry Austin Jr., to propose getting involved in representing these testers. And all he said to me was, make sure you give these people the same quality of representation you would give to any other client of this law firm. You know, which is, you know, that was a lesson for me about, about the role that lawyers were expected to pay, play at that time. You know, that we are fortunate to have the license we have and to have the skills that we have. And with that uh, blessing comes an obligation to give back, to plow those skills in for the benefit of society and in whatever way we think we can best make a contribution. And so I got involved early on in my career in, in doing fair housing litigation. Then I did school to segregation litigation. And I was involved in, in various community activities along the way. But it came second nature to me. I assumed it came second nature to everybody, but because uh, I don't think I was doing anything extraordinary. I was doing what I had the opportunity to do. Now, you mentioned Dr. Kenneth Clark is one of the people that you regularly associated with. You came into contact with a number of other people who were at the forefront of what we call the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the other people? You, of course, you mentioned Fisk, and most people know that Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois was at Fisk. So who were some of the other? Did you meet him, talk with him? Who were some of the I, others? So, I, so no, I did not. I, so, so around that time, Dr. Du Bois, I think he had, he had moved to Ghana by that time okay. in, the, in the 50s. Okay. Uh, but, but he was under attack by the House on American Activities Committee. Uh, and uh, my grandfather was one of the few uh, black leaders and black intellectuals who stood up and defended Dr. Du Bois uh, when he was under attack by HUAC at that time. People don't can't can't imagine what it was like to live in the 50s. But it was but the but the time it was a time of. So we live in a time of polarization now, but the polarization that, that occurred in the 50s was you know, we, we were we were living in, in a red scare, you know, so the Second World War had ended and an iron curtain descended up, across Eastern Europe. And, you know, the U.S. thought it was it felt so smug because it had the atom bomb and all of a sudden it discovered that Russia had one, too. You know, and they started looking for who the spies are that, 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 that leaked the secrets to the Russians and that sort of thing. And there was a lot of just hysteria throughout the 40s and the 50s. And that was the so Dr. Du Bois got caught up in that, that hysteria. And as I said, my grandfather was part of the, the group of the small group of people that defended him. But so when I came along, so I was a I was probably a, between my freshman and sophomore year in college that I that. Judge Constance Baker Motley, who had gone to Fisk and was at Fisk with my father, arranged for me to have an internship with Kenneth Clark in New York. 
And so it's, 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 it's relationships and it just came as, as natural as ever. And so I, so in, in the summer of 1967, I had an internship at Metropolitan Applied Research Center, which was an Institute of Urban Problems headed by Dr. Clark. So at the same time that I had that internship, there, there were a number of people who had fellowships, including John Lewis, Julian Bond, Roy Ennis, and folks, you know, of, of that caliber. And so my first visit to Atlanta came as, a, other than to uh, change planes, came as a result of John Lewis coming into my office one day in the summer of 1967 and saying, SCLC, on whose board John sat at the time, SCLC is having a convention in Atlanta. Would you like to go? So here I was, you know, getting ready to be a sophomore in college, and I'm invited to come mingle with the folks that were making things really change in the United States. And so my introduction to Atlanta was through Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, Hosea Williams, and folks that were in the middle of making really things happen, things change in the South. So my impression of Atlanta was through the lens of that leadership. And I got the impression that it, this was an exciting place to be. So that when I was thinking of places to, to settle after law school, Atlanta was at the top of my list, probably as a result of the impression that was, that was made in that first trip to that first SCLC convention. So you've got a unique lens. You've got a, the lens of Atlanta comes through the leadership that you just mentioned. The lens of the civil rights movement comes through the lens of the people who were actually making it happen, who are basically sitting in your living room, mm -hmm. uh, starting with your grandfather. Um, so that leads us to talking about the what perhaps is the quote unquote biggest moment from a legal standpoint in the civil rights movement, Brown versus Board of Education, probably the best known, most famous, one of the most famous Supreme Court cases, and clearly the top of the pack as far as the civil rights area is concerned. Uh, and surely that many people know about it, but just for those who might not, would you mind telling us what, what was Brown versus Board of Education about? So Brown versus Board of Education was, was in some ways a culmination, in other ways a beginning, but it was a culmination of a decades long, I don't want to say crusade, but certainly campaign on the part of the NAACP to challenge segregation. Because in the first half of the 20th century, the Southern United States was a society that was ruled by segregation. That is what it's hard for some folks to understand today. But there was a time in the South where it was illegal for African-Americans to coexist in the same space with people who were not Af African-American. You couldn't be in the same school by law. You couldn't be in the same places of public accommodation or, or, or different rules applied. You couldn't drink from the same water fountain. So this was uh, predicated on the notion of African-American inferiority. In the 1880s, the, the Supreme Court came up with this decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, that basically legalized, gave the, 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 uh, the constitutional imprimatur for segregation. It basically said, you may have a constitution that has a 14th Amendment that says equal protection under law is guaranteed to all citizens. 
but that the way that they wanted decided to apply it was you could have equality and still mandate separate separation separate but equal was was the rule in the Plessy versus Ferguson case and as a result of the Plessy case you started to see a whole regime of segregation legislation in all the southern states you, can, you can, there were segregated streetcars segregated trains segregated uh, places of public accommodation by law you had segregated neighborhoods you had segregated schools and that sort of thing and so so in the 30s the NAACP which had been around since right before world war, the first world war uh, decided they were going to take that on uh, they, they were going to take that on and 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 the strategy that they came up with was to to build a realization in the courts that segregation had within it a contradiction you know that that if you had if you had equality in the context of separateness it was expensive if it was real equality but it was but the equality was a myth okay so you had separate schools in in a lot of in, in a lot of communities and Per pupil expenditure at the white school might be one thing, and per pupil expenditure in the black schools may be a tenth of that. You know, black teachers may get paid half to two thirds of what white teachers were, were, were paid, and that sort of. So the the facilities uh, were not the same. And so throughout the '30s and '40s, the NACP brought a variety of, of lawsuits, but some of the lawsuits they, they, they brought were, were, were equalization lawsuits, challenging the differences in compensation of teachers, for example, challenging the difference in, in facilities made available for black schools versus white schools and that sort of thing. And to the point where by the time after the Second World War, the Supreme Court started enforcing, say so you had cases at the graduate school level, mandating that that states that didn't have um, black law schools or black engineering schools or journalism schools had to establish them or else open up, you know. Uh, and so you, these were this is brick by brick. You had precedents leading to a challenge to, to segregation, uh, but 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 starting off with the whole notion that the facility so that that separate but equal wasn't equal, at least as 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 applied, you know. And then you got to the point of of some of these professional school cases, you know, and it started to be to become clear that okay, in law school, for example, part of the uh, benefit of a legal education comes not just from the instruction you're getting from the professors and from what you're reading in the books, but from the interaction that you get with your peers, you know, uh, and, uh, and from the networks that you, that you create, that you use in your careers. And if you don't have the same network because you are segregated, if you don't have that interaction with the same, you don't have, if your interaction is limited to people just like you and not with every, everybody, that limits the quality of your education. So you started to have 
the court recognized that not only is expensive, but it may not be equal. It may not be equal. And you start to have these rulings at the graduate school level. The logical extension would be would have been to start to bring some cases that apply the same principle, you know, at, at the collegiate level. But most of the states had funded, you know, state sponsored black colleges. They may not have had the same programs. Meanwhile, you started to have some individuals bring lawsuits about elementary schools and high schools and the NACP to stay in front of that effort. <laughs> to stay in front of that effort. So maybe we ought to focus on, on this. Certainly after the death of Charles Hamilton Houston, folks came together and said, now is the time to make a frontal assault on segregation. We've got some precedent that says, okay, in as applied, it's not equal. And in some circumstances, uh, inherently it's unequal. Let's bring the challenge that says in all circumstances, it's inherently unequal. And that's where Kenneth Clark comes in. Kenneth Clark was a renowned psychologist and he and his wife devised a, a series of experiments that were very simple that involved black dolls and white dolls. And you place them in front of a black child. And you ask, them, okay, so which doll is the good doll? Which doll is someone you'd want to play with? Which doll do you like? You know, and based on the responses, responses were so sad because the black children, so many of the black children who were asked these questions that were subjected to these studies expressed a preference for the white doll. You know, said the white doll is a good doll. The white doll is the one I would want to play with. And that led them to the conclusion that as a result of segregation, because these were kids that were attending separate schools, black children were developing a negative image of themselves. That segregation itself was a badge of inferiority that black kids internalized. And so that led to a theory of stigmatic injury that you will see if you read the Brown decision where Justice Warren writing for the court basically said segregation breeds a sense of inferiority on the, on the part of black children. And for that reason, there is a damage that comes from that. And because of that damage, separate but equal is inherently unequal. And so that was the, that was the case that was the case that broke it open because it had the greatest impact. So if you had a if you had a decision about graduate school, that only affects certain people who already have a college education. If you make a, if you have a decision about elementary school, that affects everybody. And so as to everybody in, in, in Southern society, there was the, there was all of a sudden the necessity to deal with the fact that the court had said um, you are not carrying out the mandate of the 14th Amendment by having these segregated schools. And that's what the Brown case was all about.
Now, Brown was really more than one case. It was it was several cases. Correct. 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 What were the other cases that went along with Brown? So Brown was a case out of Topeka, Kansas. Brown was was the father of a daughter who had to walk past a white school to get to the black school to to which she was assigned. There was a case out of uh, South Carolina, Briggs versus Elliott. It started out as a facilities dissatisfaction. So the parents were dissatisfied with the fact that they didn't have a bus and then their kids had to walk 16 miles round trip to go to school and back. And couldn't we get an equalization? In Prince Edward County, Virginia, that, you know, the, the school building was dilapidated and the kids had a strike. They walked out. They walked out of school saying that they wanted a building that was just as good as the building that the other kids had. So there were, there were cases out of you know, Kansas, South Carolina, Delaware. There was a case out of DC as well. Um, and so all these cases were, were consolidated and argued at the same time. The, 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 the DC case was decided separately, but the same day. And the other four cases were consolidated in one decision, Brown versus Board of Education. What made the D.C. case, what made the court consolidate the four, but make this, the D.C. case separate? Well, D.C. is a federal jurisdiction, you know, and so the state cases were under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The D.C. case was under the, the Due Process Clause. And be, because it was a federal jurisdiction as opposed to involving state action, there was a need to have a different theory of relief. In those two kinds of cases. So we've got four lawsuits in all, five really, mm-hmm. yeah. four that are state cases, mm-hmm. Delaware, South Carolina, Virginia, and of course, Kansas, and then the D.C. case you mentioned. How Well, you've already told us how each case was different from each other, but what, how are they similar enough to make the Supreme Court hear them all together? They were engineered to be similar. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if the Virginia case was about the building and the South Carolina case was about the bus, the NACP said and told these these plaintiffs in all these cases, we will represent you if you seek desegregation. It's all about the remedy. What what remedy do you want to seek? Do you want to just you just want to have a bus? You just want to have a building, or do you want to have? They, so there are a number of different ways you could go in challenging the wrong that's at issue, the condition that was at issue. In these cases, and, and 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 the NACP had had made a decision that they were going to challenge segregation full on, and so the 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 cases that they were going to take were cases in which the plaintiffs sought as a remedy desegregation. So it was it was the remedy as much as anything else that was the common element in all these cases, and and it was because of the involvement of the NACP they were seeking the same remedy in all those cases. Were all these cases handled by the same lawyer? Was it just one lawyer handling all of these? Well, no, so it's not really possible. It's, it's, it, we'll put it this way. It, it, it's not really possible given the resources of NACP to handle all the cases that they were handling in the 40s and 50s. And so what they were able to do was establish a network of cooperating attorneys you know, in jurisdictions all over the country. So as a result, uh, people like Oliver Hill, 
in Richmond, other folks in other jurisdictions, they had some experience with civil rights cases in their states, having been cooperating attorneys for the NACP in other cases, teacher, teacher, teacher salary equalization cases and those kinds of cases. And so it was, it was through the use of, of this kind of network that um, they were able to represent plaintiffs in all these diverse jurisdictions. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions of lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.